You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. As we think about the unity of the church, again this evening we read beginning with verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And tonight we're going to set our attention on the third verse, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's ask the blessing of our God as we encounter His Word tonight. Father in heaven, thank You. My brothers and sisters, in the time together we have this night, we pray that You would Bless us as we open Your Word together, that You would teach us, that You would enlighten our minds and hearts and strengthen us in our inner man so that we can grasp the things that You have revealed. Help me, Lord, to teach in a way that is clear. Help us to engage Your Word in a way that is alert and desiring what it is we will hear. And may the result be that our lives are changed, transformed, Yet again, as we are each time that we encounter Your Word, when we are teachable, when we are ready to receive it. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight the seed would not be stolen, but it would fall on good soil, and it would bear much fruit. We'll thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Local church unity exists on a foundation larger than unity. That is, we can know that we should be unified. We can talk about the need to be unified. But the way that actually is accomplished in the life of a congregation, the way that's practically experienced, involves truth that goes beyond just the idea of unity. And what is true for the church is unity is true for unity in every realm of the Christian life. This is just as true when you go home. This is true for your family. This is true for your marriage. It's not enough to say, hey, we need to be unified. The question is, are you embracing everything necessary for that unity to be lived out? If you ask, what is the larger thing? What is the larger foundation that unity exists upon? There are a couple of things we see in the previous two verses. Unity exists on the foundation of a chief ambition one that belongs to our new life in Jesus Christ, that ambition is to glorify God, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, the calling with which we have been called. The Lord called us to Himself, an effectual call, a call that produced the new birth, a call that produced new life in us. We desire to live lives that match that calling, that are 
worthy of that calling, that glorify God. And I'm going to tell you, without that desire to glorify God, every other exhortation that follows will fall on deaf ears. It's always a good place to begin to ask yourself tonight as we get started, do you want to glorify God in the life of the church? Your part in this local church, do you want to glorify God at home in your family? Well, that's the right ambition. That's the chief ambition for the Christian life. But that ambition then must also embrace the attitudes necessary to live it out. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, verse 1. How, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. To embrace unity, you have to have a heart that allows for it. And the heart that allows for unity is a heart of humility at the beginning. This is the spring source from which the other two attitudes that he mentions function. Without humility, there is no gentleness. Without humility, there is no patience. And so you can even begin at that fundamental point. If you say you want to live a life that glorifies God, well, are you embracing a humble posture? You want to know what disrupts unity in every realm of life, every walk of life? Pride disrupts unity. So humility, gentleness, patience, and then you have two, two phrases that point us to things we must do out of those attitudes. They're imperative when you consider how they function. And that is with all humility and gentleness and patience, then we are to bear with one another in love. We're to live lives that are forbearing. We tolerate each other in a way that's godly. It's not a natural kind of tolerance. It's a supernatural kind of tolerance. We, we, we truly care for each other. And so we're able to absorb offense. We're able to absorb wrongdoing. We're able to forgive. We're able to move forward. But there's a second imperative if we're going to live this out, and we find it in our verse tonight, verse 3, at the same time we're to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to be diligent. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but... Let me just say something about this at the very outset. We know that unity requires more than just the talk of unity and even the expression of our desire to have it. But having said that it requires more than just the desire for it, we still must desire it. I mean, this has to be a conscious priority for us. You can say unity rests on a foundation larger than unity. That's true. But you still must say at the same time, yet unity is important. It's something I care about. It's something I'm to strive for. It's something I'm to make a priority. This is what we must say individually. This is what we must say as a church. This has to be a priority for us, that we live lives that express the unity that we have in Christ. And if it matters to us, then it must be pursued like a priority. A conscious priority that then I am making choices, practical choices, by which I am pursuing what I know to be important. That's what our verse tonight makes clear. Tonight we're going to think about making unity a priority. And specifically we're going to talk about four requirements for the preservation of church unity. 
Four requirements for the preservation of church unity, or as I said, you could apply this even at home. Four requirements for the preservation of unity between believers. I'm talking about a Christian family. Four requirements to preserve the peace that you have in Jesus Christ and that should be expressed even at home. The first thing I want to point out tonight is this. Unity requires sincere passion. Unity requires sincere passion. A sincere desire for unity. A zealous pursuit of the things that make for unity. Now before we talk about that desire, which is spoken to in the, in the word diligent, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. First, I want us to focus on those words, the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. What is the unity that you and I are to be zealous about preserving? The unity of the Spirit. What does Paul have in mind? What he has in mind, I believe, is something that, that we don't create, we, we enjoy. The implications of what God has done, we seek to maintain the practical enjoyment of it. But the unity He has in mind is not something we produce, not something that we bring into being. This is something that proceeds from the Spirit of God. He's the source of it. The genitive to pneumatos, I believe, is a, a genitive of source or origin. A unity explained by the Spirit of God. It has come from Him. This is salvation's unity. This is a factual unity. This is something you were made a part of the day the Lord saved you. John 17, 11, our Lord is praying and He says these words, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In the 20th verse, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So taking into account all of us who are sitting here tonight, down through the ages, the gospel has been proclaimed and we have heard the gospel and we have believed it. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. Also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's the oneness that they may also be in us. This is salvation's unity. I also understand it this way because of what follows our verse. And what follows our verse are a series of statements about all the ways that we are factually and objectively unified. How are we one? Next verse, verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. We all belong to the same body, the body of Christ. We all have the same Holy Spirit abiding within us. We all share the same hope that belongs to the, the calling of salvation. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. There's one God and Father of all, of all of us who know Jesus, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, this is a unity that we have we don't create it. We're not the explanation for it. We didn't produce it. 
Our God did this for us. And because of that unity, now we are called to action. And the action that we're called to is preservation. The word is terrain, translated to keep. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're to, we're to keep it, maintain it, preserve it. The standard Greek lexicon has this, talking about this particular Greek word. It says, it speaks of holding on to something so as not to give it up or lose it. God has given us this unity in His Son. Now, the experience of that unity, the practical outworking of that unity is something you and I are to aim to hold on to. We don't give it up. We don't let it go. We're to treasure it. We're to treasure it. So that treasuring of this unity is reflected in the way that we behave toward each other. Let's just pause for a moment and ask, the way you treat fellow members of the body of Christ, do you treasure unity? The way you think about them? The things you hold in your heart toward them? Are you treasuring unity by the attitudes that you're holding on to? If you allow yourself to be wounded and bitter and you think about all the ways you're going to now get even or get out or whatever the thought may be, does that reflect treasuring unity? He calls us to action. Keep it, preserve it, hold on to it, maintain it, which all says treasure it, this unity God has given us in His Son. We're to treasure it. But this is why I said it requires sincere passion because now understanding that unity He's talking about and the action that is called for, notice it includes zeal, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to be zealous for it. Legacy Standard Bible has being diligent. English Standard Version has eager. New English Translation has making every effort. This isn't something mild. Churches, healthy churches, are not mild in their concern about their unity. They are zealous in their concern for their unity. They are careful. They are watchful. They are awake. They are diligent. They are eager. They're making every effort to watch over the unity that God has given them in His Son. Peter O'Brien, I thought, had a really good comment. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth it if you can stay with me. Listen to what he says. He says this second participial clause, making every effort is stylistically parallel to the previous one and also functions as an imperative. Right? To forbear with each other is a command from God. And being diligent to do what he's talking about here is a command from God. That's what O'Brien's saying, and I think he's right. Paul's appeal is urgent and cannot be easily translated into English. The verb he uses has an element of haste, urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it. Further, the exhortation is an unusual one. The church's unity is described as the unity of the Spirit, which signifies a unity that God's Spirit creates, and therefore not the reader's own achievement. Yet they are exhorted urgently to maintain it. God has inaugurated this unity in Christ, 
though the events described in Ephesians 2, 11-22 as a result of which believers, Jew and Gentile, together have access to God in one spirit. In the following verses, this unity, which includes Jew-Gentile relations in the body of Christ, but is not limited to them, is underscored by a series of acclamations of oneness, which means that it is as indestructible as God Himself. Just pause and say this. So the unity, and I think he's right, the unity God has in view here is not something we can, that can be destroyed. But are we enjoying it, you see? Are we treasuring it? Are we striving to live in it and in that sense maintain it? Ultimately, the unity and reconciliation that have been won through Christ's death are part and parcel of God's intention of bringing all things together into unity in Christ. Since the church has been designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness and the pattern on which he, the reconciled universe of the future will be modeled, believers are expected to live in a manner consistent with this divine purpose. To keep this unity must mean to maintain it visibly. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it must be transparently evident and believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that this is so. To live in a manner which mars the unity of the Spirit is to do despite to the gracious, reconciling work of Christ. It is tantamount to saying that His sacrificial death by which relationships with God and others have been restored, along with the resulting freedom of access to the Father, are of no real consequence to us. Close quote. He's saying, do you understand that the unity that is in view here is the unity that is true in Christ? The Spirit of God has brought it into being, and it points to what everything will be like one day when God wraps it all up. And if Christ's death is meant to bring into being this oneness that will glorify God, doesn't that unity matter to the church right now? If you know that Jesus prayed for us to be one and died to make us one, then would disunity trouble you? Do you have a passion? Do you have a zeal? No mild desire, a strong desire to pursue the things that allow the unity we have in Jesus to be visible among us, to be manifested among us, not to be out of order among us. Does the unity of the church matter to you? Do you care? And does the fact that Christ died to make it true make it a priority for you and for me? So first requirement for unity in a local church is a passion for it, a passion for it, an understanding of its importance and its priority. Therefore, we care. We genuinely passionately, zealously care. Second, unity requires theological submission. Unity requires theological submission. You could also say theological application. You are able to deduce what God is putting on display in His Word with its implications, and you apply those things because you are submitting your mind and heart to those things. You're saying amen to them by the way you live. You're saying amen to those things by what goes on in your mind, what goes on in your attitudes, what goes on in your speech, what goes on in your behaviors. You are 
living your life in accordance with theological truth. Isn't it interesting that what Paul is doing in this entire section is giving us theological, biblical, spiritual realities that then should bind our consciences. I want you to live in a way that matches with your calling. That requires theological reflection, doesn't it? And then he, in verse 4, goes on to all of these objective realities. There's one body, one spirit, etc., etc., etc. All this is theological reality that's to be connected with the way we behave, you see. So that what God reveals in His Word binds my conscience and therefore also binds my behavior. I'll put it to you in a very practical way. Your commitment to the things that make for unity will reveal your faith in the Word of God. If you're someone for whom unity isn't that important, it doesn't really matter, you can go on, you can go on. In thinking that you know disrupts the unity, and attitudes that you know disrupt the unity, and in speech that you know disrupts the unity, and behaviors that you know disrupts the unity. If you can just go on in that, and it doesn't matter to you, the only way that could be true is that you don't believe these theological truths that are being set before you in the Word of God. The Bible must be of very little importance to you if unity doesn't matter to you. Will the Son of God desire our unity and you not care? The only way we can refuse to be at peace with our brothers as much as depends on us is if God's revelation is not binding our consciences. So when Paul goes through these theological arguments that then he applies to the church's thinking and attitudes and behaviors, does it have any effect on you? Does it, does it hold any weight with you? There will be no unity, practical unity, among people for whom theology doesn't matter. So the first thing is a passion for what God has revealed to be a priority for us. I care about what He cares about. The second thing is the reason I care is because I'm hearing the arguments. They're landing on me. They are making their case with me. As the apostle is making these arguments, those arguments matter to me. I can see how these things connect. I understand that what I'm being exhorted to is what Jesus died for, and that matters to me. And I understand that we really have a unity. It's not, it's not imagination. It's not a mirage. It's, it's spiritual truth that's been revealed by God in His Word. That matters to me that I belong to, to all of this that's being discussed. And therefore, I want now then to do what God is calling me to do in these verses. Is that you? Unity will require theological submission because it requires theological application. Third, unity requires divine power. Unity requires divine power. Oh, how we underestimate this in relationships. In a different kind of way than we saw in the chief priests and the elders this morning in Matthew 21. You know, we have our own version of this where we're right in the middle of a relational conflict, and we forget that God is there. 
it's as though we're going to navigate this one in our own strength, according to our own wisdom. We're going to turn it into a battle of wills or a battle of wits, not recognizing that we can't do anything that pleases God without Christ Himself. For without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. The attitudes necessary to the life that's being described, humility, gentleness, patience, the strength to forbear with each other, the strength to be diligent about this unity, all of that strength requires divine help. We can't do it in our own strength. Unity will always have God as its explanation. A unified church will be a mature church, and a mature church will be a church that is consistently walking by the Spirit so that the unity you see is not explained on some human level. Oh, such nice people are there, friendly people, outgoing people. This is why they have such unity. No, if they have true unity, it's because they're saved people and submitted people and theologically astute people who are connecting their theology with their lives and they are yielding themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God is filling their lives in such a way that what you're seeing in that church is explained by God. And the same will be true in your home. What's missing in a family with all kinds of strife? The leadership of the Holy Spirit. The flesh produces strife. The Spirit produces peace and unity among believers. Here he mentions humility and gentleness and patience. What does that sound like? Well, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, he's talking about a unity, right? That the Spirit created salvation's unity. Baptized by Christ, by, by means of the Spirit of God Himself into this one body to which we all belong, he brought us into this unity. Well, He sustains our living out of it, our practical experience of it. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what He produces. Does your life, this past week, let's don't take too big a chunk, Let's just think real close to tonight. Does your life this past week speak of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and your submission to Him? Can you say that you are characterized by love? Can you say that the people around you who know you best would say, no, there's someone who's full of joy, joy, peace, I mean, not discontentment, not running around in a thousand different directions, unsure of everything and full of unrest, but peace. Is that you? Patience, kindness. I mean, not just any kind of kindness, the kind of kindness that God produces. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You'll never be condemned for those things. You'll never be corrected by God for those things. The field is wide open for you to run in a direction that would please God. Just embrace those qualities that the Spirit of God Himself is pleased to produce in your life. If you'll yield to Him, you're commanded to be being filled by Him. 
which involves an honest heart-level submission to truth. Not your way, but the Lord's way. Not your thoughts, but His. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He gives you the will, that is to say the desire, to do what pleases Him. And then He gives you the ability to do what pleases Him. He's at work in you, believer, giving you the desires and the abilities that would produce a kind of living that pleases Him. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Men full of the Spirit, Acts chapter 6. Is that how you could be characterized? A man or woman full of the Spirit. So unity requires a sincere passion. It's like you think about the exhortation, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. Well, the beginning of unity in one sense is get unity. It matters. It's a priority. We've got to walk in it, willing to do what's necessary to have it. And then it requires theological submission and application. I must pursue these things because God has revealed in His Word how important they are. I can't treat this lightly or mildly, but I need the Lord to do it. I can't do it in my own strength. He has to be at work in me, giving me the desire and the ability to do it, and He will. The problem if I don't have the desire, people sometimes, as you know, think like this and argue like this. Well, I just don't, you know, I would, but I just don't have the desire for it. Well, that's a you problem. That's not a God problem. How many of you know that God is willing to grant answers to His people for prayers and desires that accord with His will? Amen? So you can't say, well, I just don't have the desire. Well, that's you. That's your problem. That's a sin issue. Fourth, Fourth requirement, unity then exists in divine peace. Unity exists in divine peace. We come to the end of this verse, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I think that little word in there has to do with the realm of the sphere in which this is experienced. A peace that God Himself has created. A peace that God Himself has created. This bond of God's peace that exists because of what God has done. I think as I think it may have been O'Brien mentioned in his quote, what is running through all of this is something that Paul is emphasizing in the book of Ephesians. That is this unity that God has created between Jew and Gentile. In one body now you have Jews and Gentiles, brothers, standing on the same ground, the dividing partition torn down the body of Jesus. We are one new man in Jesus Christ. Now live like it. And perhaps the strife, whatever strife he would envision that would lead to this sort of exhortation involves strain between Jews and Gentiles and how they're living with each other and relating to each other. And he's saying, don't you know you're one in Jesus Christ and now you must pursue the visible manifestation of that oneness. People have to be able to walk into your fellowship and see, look what Jesus has done. Well, while we don't have much in the way of Jew and Gentile problems in this congregation, the same oneness exists. It's the same oneness. The same oneness that unites Jew and Gentile Christian unites every Christian in this room. It's the same oneness. And where we are obeying the Lord, what will characterize our oneness is peace. Divine peace. 
our war with God is over. We were born haters of God. But our war with each other is over. Because the Bible also describes our past as a past where we were hating one another. Hating God and hating one another. This was our life as an unbeliever. And now we love God. But if you're saved, you love each other too. You love each other too. The question is, are you living like it? Are you living like you love each other too? I fear that some hearing me will receive the exhortations intellectually but find they have no power to live them out spiritually. You can't live out unity where oneness doesn't exist. You can't live out unity without Christ, without the Spirit. In other words, if you don't truly have salvation, this doesn't belong to you. You're not in the bond that God has created. And I wonder sometimes if what should awaken some sinners to their lostness, churched sinners, church members who don't know Christ, what should alert some church members to their lostness is they live their lives in perpetual turmoil. There is no peace. There is no love. There is no gentleness. There is no patience. There is no humility. There is no kindness. There is no goodness. Harold Honer says this, verses 1 through 3 may be thus summarized. As a prisoner in the Lord, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to maintain a lifestyle worthy of their call to salvation and to the body of believers. Their lives should demonstrate humility, gentleness, and patience, which are accomplished by forbearing one another in love and making every effort to preserve the unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. So there it is. There are four requirements for the unity of the church, four requirements for the unity of God's people wherever unity is needed. Sincere passion. So I'll ask you, do you care about it tonight? Do you care about unity? Theological submission. Will you bow your mind and heart to the truth God has revealed in His Word that calls for you to zealously pursue the things that make for unity? Will it bind your conscience tonight? Because don't tell me you believe the Bible if this doesn't matter to you. Divine power. You cannot do it in your own strength. Sin is rising up. The flesh, you know, learn something about the sin principle that still abides in you. It is very hard to stir your flesh up and then tell it to sit down. You have to mortify sin at its starting point. Don't let it run wild for a good long while and then try to master it in your own strength. You're going to fail. Where you know you're going astray in your heart, you need to repent on this spot. Right here, right now, this night, this sermon, this word from God. Lord, my heart has been in the wrong place. Forgive me. Change me. Because you can't live 
what God's Word calls for in your own strength. Divine peace. This is the sphere in which God's people pursue together the unity that already exists but needs to be manifest visibly among us. May the Lord help us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this call that we hear tonight. And I do pray that we would respond now. Whatever it is in anyone's heart in this fellowship that would disrupt unity in this body, may we deal with that now. Not excuse it, not justify it, not explain it away, but look right into the face of it and call it what it is, sin. And take those steps necessary in submission to you, in submission to your Spirit's leadership that would allow us to walk in peace with each other as much as depends on us. And in this way, Lord, may our chief ambition be satisfied to glorify You, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In this way, may the fruit of the Spirit be on display in our lives, fruit that includes humility and gentleness and patience. And may we apply it in a way that causes us to be forbearing toward each other and to make unity a priority in the life of this congregation, knowing that Jesus died for this. Cause it to matter to us, Lord, more than it has. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.